Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's program, hosted by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. My name is Kirk Hansen. It is my pleasure to introduce David Gergen, Senior Political Analyst at CNN and Founding Director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard University. At Harvard, David teaches public leadership and works closely with a rising generation of young global leaders, social entrepreneurs, and military veterans. He has a wealth of political experience, having served as White House advisor to four U.S. presidents from both parties, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. For some 30 years, he has been an award-winning media commentator on politics and public affairs. David graduated with honors from Yale University and the Harvard Law School and is a veteran of the U.S. Navy. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming David Gergen. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Please, please. This is going to be an informal conversation this evening to take advantage of David's presence with us, his wide experience, and his insightful commentaries on the state of the United States and the globe. David, we talked beforehand. I'd like to start with the broadest possible question. Are we in the United States and around the globe in a special moment Politically, you mean, and is it is it a dark moment? In other words, is this the end of the world? Uh, okay, so what you're asking? Well, we'll see. Well, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> I, but I do want to say just a word. I, I, I how privileged I feel to be at Santa Clara. Uh, you have a reputation not only on the West Coast but across much of the country, and I'm I'm very grateful actually to two. I we have two children. And both our son and our daughter had Jesuit education uh, while they were in high school. And uh, they were at uh, Gonzaga in uh, D.C. and then uh, Georgetown Visitation. Uh, And they both gained enormously from those experiences. So thank you uh, for what you're doing. Um, And I I must say, before we get to the end of this, I hope we can talk about what makes us hopeful uh, about the country. Um, you know, it was some, some time ago. I think it was, I think it was Mark Twain who once said of, of, um, uh, the, the classical musician, um, is his, his music is actually much better than it sounds. <laughs> uh, and in some ways our future is, I think, brighter than it sounds. But, uh, even so, we are in a dark passage now. I think it's one of the most unusual times we've been in. We've never been as divided as this uh, since the 1850s, uh, just before the Civil War. And that you can see what happened, how those divisions got us into as much trouble as they did. Um, and it's some, in some ways, it's accelerating. Uh, this, this passage began before Trump, and I'm afraid it's going to continue in various ways after Trump. Uh, but in the meantime, we have to come to grips with, recognize, and live through what we have, uh, and it's um, it's not just our 
political life anymore. It started out as being an issue of our political life, but it's become more and more a question about our culture um, and about our whether we have a s- civil society uh, and whether we how we treat each other as people. Um, you know, I, I, I will say occasionally some good things about Trump and what he's trying to do, probably not very often. Um, but but I do think that my, my wife is a, is a therapist, and she studied Carl Jung, um, who was a contemporary of Freud's, of course. But Jung basically argued that all of us have bright sides and we have dark sides, and that the, the struggle in life and, is in coming to grips with your dark side uh, and making sure you can manage your life and have your dark side under control. And one of the issues that I think increasingly has come now is that the appeals that are being made from the White House to our dark side are giving permission to people to pull that up and to make it part of their exterior. The, the notion has, often, has usually been we try to control our dark side and keep it contained inside us. But when you allow people to express their hatreds, their fears, their antagonisms. All of us have, you know, mixtures. We're, very few of us are pure. Um, and you have sort of instantaneous things, but you would learn, part of growing up is learning how to deal with that. And it's, it's, and we're going back to an adolescence sort of, sort of sense of behavior. But more than that, we're talking to each other and about each other in ways that I think are just inescapably going to, to coarsen uh, our conversation and create and, and deepen divisions among us. I mean, the very conversation that's going on about these four young women who are members of Congress, why in the world are we even talking about this? And why are we singling them out for the kind of outrageous sort of, you know, uh, uh, attacks uh, that would have been unheard of in the past? And yet we have, and these are the kind of things that happen in the deep recesses of a culture, and when you put them out in front, it, it really does change the nature of what we're doing. So I think this is more about the way we hold together as a society. Increasingly, it's that. What kind of, you know, uh, the just it's a question of ethics uh, and a question of sort of public morality, and who are, who's going to set the example for our kids and our grandkids? So they will take cues from what they see adults doing uh, when they're when they're young and watching and watching all this so i th- I, th- I think it's deeply troubling and i think it's probably it's there's a very good chance it's going to get worse before it gets better i think i'm i happen to be a short-term pessimist but a long-term optimist um i just wish the future would get here quickly <laughs> the, T- take us back you say this isn't just the creation of this moment right but it's it's developed over time, right? So, uh, what what caused that? What caused that coarseness or that dark side to yeah. come out more uh, prior to, to President Trump's yeah. uh, administration? Well, I, you, you you could make arguments about what happened in the preceding administration or two administrations or three administrations. I actually think there's something that's very generational that's underway here, uh, and that is that when when I went to Washington. Um, back in the early 1970s, and I was in completing a uh, tour of duty in the Navy. Um, the, 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 the city was ruled by, the country was ruled by what we call the World War II generation. 
Uh, and those were people who had essentially been young when the war started and were drawn in in one fashion or another. And their early experiences in our public life were came out of the war. Uh, and we had seven presidents in a row from John Kennedy uh, through George H.W. Bush, we call our World War II presidents. Every single one of them had worn a uniform. Uh, they'd been, they put their lives on the line for the country. Six of them were in the war itself. Jimmy Carter was in the Naval Academy. When the war ended, he was still a student, and he went on to serve honorably in the submarine, as a submariner. But that, that experience shaped their approach to public life. And so when they came back from the war, uh, many of them peeled off their uniforms uh, and immediately ran for Congress. Uh, it was and, and uh, it, well, Richard Nixon, of all people, once told me in his dying days that one of the proudest moments in his life uh, came uh, when he was he got elected in 1946 from Southern California, uh, and w- when the Republicans uh, swept the Congress, they took the Congress back for the first time since 1932, um, and the um, when when they when they got in, Harry Truman then was a beleaguered president. And while he was under siege, Truman proposed the Marshall Plan uh, and didn't put his own name on it because he was so unpopular. He put the name of George Marshall on it because Marshall was the most respected person in the country and he was Secretary of State. Um, but the Marshall Plan was very unpopular at first. There was a bipartisan effort of which Nixon was a part to get it passed. They eventually got the public approval up. And then Nixon said one of his proudest moments came when the Marshall Plan was put to a vote uh, in the House of Representatives from a very, very unpopular Democratic president. And he, Richard Nixon, a Republican, stood up in favor of the Marshall Plan. And there on the other side of the aisle stood up another freshman new member of Congress from the other party, John F. Kennedy. Uh And Nixon's point was, when the chips are down, we all stand up together. Uh, And that is something that characterizes that generation. And by the way, they also had a great sense of humor which is very important in, in, in this field. I, I used to pal around with Pierre Salinger, who was Kennedy's uh, press secretary, and uh, he would tell the story about when, when Kennedy was president and Pierre was was uh, the press secretary and he had an office in the West Wing, and one morning at 11 o'clock his phone rang and it was the president. He said, Pierre, come in here. I need to talk to you. So he went in the Oval Office. Yes, sir, Mr. President. Pierre, I know you love a good cigar just as much as I do. Yes, I do, Mr. President. And so, well, Pierre, I need you to get me some of Havana's finest cigars. <laughs> well, Mr. President, how many do you need and how soon do you need them? Because it's not easy. He said, I need 100. And I need them by 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. President, that's going to be tough. I know you're a good man, Pierre. See you later. <laughs> Next morning, 11 o'clock, phone rings. Pierre, come in here. I need to talk to you. Walks in. Pierre, did you get those cigars? Yes, sir, Mr. President. A hundred of Savannah's finest. They're right here. I knew you are a good man, Pierre. I'll see you later. Noon sharp, President Kennedy went on national television to declare a trade embargo against Cuba. <laughs> the, uh, that had, he had a certain amount of humor. Bob Dole had that. Bob Dole, uh, he was he was the last of the World War II. He's still alive, thank God. 
He's still wonderful. And they bring veterans in now from World War II. They bring them in by plane loads, you know, during the week. And he goes out and greet them at Andrews Air Force Base every time he can. Um, but I remember when he and, he, and he had a wicked sense of humor. In 1996, he ran against Bill Clinton to, uh, for presidency. He had no chance, but he ran a, a, a valiant campaign. But he used to talk about going out. He was in New Hampshire, and he was going around his nursing home shaking hands. And finally, he stopped in front, and he got a lot of blank stares. And finally, he went up in front of a woman in a wheelchair and said, Do you know who I am? And she said, no, but if you ask, ask at the front desk, maybe they can tell you. <laughs> so I like that generation a lot. I had a lot of respect for them. I miss them. Uh, but they have now passed from the stage, and instead the stage has been increasingly been held since they, sort of the last of them, since George H.W. Bush, by a, a young, much younger generation, what we call the baby boomers. Uh, and many of us here in this room are baby boomers, or perhaps you're a preemie just like me. Uh, but in any event, when we, we came of age in the 60s and 70s, and instead of having a very successful war that brought us together, we had a war, the Vietnam War, that put an axe right down the middle of our generation, and we've never recovered from that. We also had revolutions that were well-deserved and long in coming uh, that really advanced the country overall, but began to build divisions within our generation, uh, whether it was the civil rights movement or the women's rights movement or the environmental movement or the consumer movement. You can you can go through the list. And people had either kept up with old values or they moved on to new values in a new world. So if you went, and a lot, of, a lot depended on where you went to school. If you went to school and University of uh, uh, Wyoming, you know, if you went to school in Montana or Oklahoma or Texas, you can, you can name the states, uh, you tended to have very traditional values. Uh, but if you went to places like uh, Berkeley or Ann Arbor or Yale or New Haven <laughs> uh, or Cambridge, um, you tended to have, you tended to have yeah, much more contemporary values. You know, frankly, it was the, the, the theme song, the mantra for our generation was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, and some of us still haven't recovered from that. The, uh, <laughs> but anyway, it split us apart. And our generation, our, the, the baby boom generation, has been, has been split apart ever since the 60s and 70s. And frankly, we've not been able to govern because of it. We've let a lot of opportunities pass. You know, we were also cuddled a lot when we were young because we were so welcome into so many households. You know, as the war ended, there was a tendency, and, and we just come through these terrible wars, there was a tendency to want to protect your child. And, you know, you, sometimes you can be overly protective. Uh, and they don't, they don't have, see the rougher sides of life, and they're not ready for that. Um, and I, I think our generation is just as, for a long, long time now, has been a generation... That is, um, in many ways, been successful, but in terms of governance, not so much. These have not been good years. How much of a role do you think the growing inequality has played in that split? Certainly, the um, the World War II generation yeah. had opportunities during the 1950s yeah. that children right. today either don't have the same opportunities right. or right. And, and and you remember in the 50s. 
That was a golden age. You look back on it economically, we were growing at three percent a year. But very importantly, as John Kennedy said, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, mm-hmm. and you didn't you didn't see this. The, the, the we'd had a lot of inequality leading into the depression. And then, it, and then after the war, we created a, a grand middle class, and part of that was the GI Bill. It was one of the most successful pieces of legislation in our history, which helped to create a large middle class. A lot of people who went to the war and, and you know were first generation to do that, do that kind of thing, and first certainly the first generation to go to college, uh, and they, that that made an enormous difference in the sense of holding us together as a society. And in recent years, we've gone back to this widening uh, uh, gap in inequality with the top 1% owns more than the next 70% or so in terms of wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been – and it, what we know is there's something in, in literature and in research literature called the Gini coefficient, and that's a measurement of how much inequality there, there is. And the higher the Gini coefficient, the, the, the more the gap. Uh, and the Gini coefficient in this country now has just sailed out of sight, and it's, you know, very likely to get wider rather than enclosed unless we do some things forcefully to, and are really get, become particularly dedicated to improving the quality of our workforce. Um, and getting education. If we can, edu- if the more we educate our workforce, the more we give, provide educational opportunities, uh, for people who are, you know, might otherwise drop out and not even finish community college, um, the, 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 more, the fairer the system is going to be. And there are plenty of jobs out there, as you know, because you're here in the middle of Silicon Valley area, uh, and there are a lot of jobs that are going unf- unfilled now because we don't have the native you know, trained workforce. It's one of the reasons why Silicon Valley is so anxious to get the H-1B visas they increase the number of those instead of cut, cutting them because they're for talented uh, people to coming in from other countries. And, you know, a talent from other countries it had been a great secret from our of our success for a long, long time. So one other explanation, which is very commonly mentioned for the kind yeah. of cleavages you're talking about, is the growing diversity of the population, uh, the electorate, uh, and even the legislature. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it, is... Is that reaction to a black president or that reaction to uh, Muslims in Congress, is that fueling this continued uh, separation? Uh, yeah, it, it, has, it has a lot to do with it. And um, I think the way people are responding uh, to, these, to these changes, the society is rapidly changing. For those of us who have been either privileged right from the beginning or have joined professional ranks, yeah, the growing diversity in the country is actually something that you enjoy. I love being on the streets of San Francisco. I love the diversity that you see there. But life has been good to me, you know. I've, I've, I look back upon this and say, well, I've been extraordinarily lucky that I, you know, I've, I'm not caught up in paycheck to paycheck and living on the edge. Uh, and I think that's hard. But if you, if, if this new global society with so much diversity, uh, and if you're if you're increasingly on the margins, then you don't like the system, and and you you find it's been brutal to you, uh, instead of treating you well. Uh, a lot of a lot of people get caught up in the, as, as capitalism as ever changes. It does leave some people sort of you know as not victims, but they they become they become uh, they they lose their jobs. They feel unnecessary. They feel like they don't have much relevance. And of course, there are going to be um, 
they're going to be unhappy with the system. But I want to make the larger point, if I might. And that is, part of what's happening in, with, with us is happening around the rest of the globe. We're not unique in the sense of having these growing disparities and a lot of people on the streets. Uh, and there's a growing literature now about uh, about the health of democracies around the world. Uh, there's a book I particularly uh, would recommend to you called How Democracies Die. Um, it's written by two Harvard professors, but it's quite short and very accessible. Um, and uh, it's for someone named Ziblatt and, and Levitsky as co-authors. But they make the point that in since the end of the cold uh, the end of the Cold War, which was such a triumph in many ways for the West, um, the one of the big issues has been that a dozen major countries, significant countries, have had democracies. They have elected someone in that democracy, and that person has turned out to be a strong man who has taken the country in a much more authoritarian direction. Uh, look at Turkey. You can look, look at what's going on in Hungary. Look at what's going on in Poland. Look at the rise of the alt-right in Italy, the, the, the trouble that has occurred now in, in France with Le Pen. Brexit, a good example of that. Uh, the Philippines, Venezuela. You can go through. And the United States is one of those countries caught up in, in some of that um, and trying to sort of you know, keep our balance. And we have the potential for a strong man here. Our checks and balances so far have worked better than anybody might have expected. And I think I think we are nowhere near the kind of shape that, say, Britain is in with Brexit or France is in, although Macron is coming back in some ways. But one of the main points that these two co-authors write about and and how democracies die is that the increasing multi-ethnic quality of society is increasingly seen as a threat by the dominant group. And that that group is usually white. Uh And uh, groups who have power rarely like to give it up give it up it's enough to you know, it's hard to ask them just to share power but to actually give up some power is, is something there's a reaction to mm-hmm. and they the, these authors make the argument that the one thing we have not yet seen is a modern democracy that adapts well to the multi multi-ethnicity that is growing up in their midst they have not learned how to deal with this yet and we in the United States are one of those countries right now that's trying to deal with that. You've, we've got a white population that is watching increasingly as the numbers are changing so that for if everybody are 30 and under in this country to be gay, the whites are in a minority. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a majority minority country, right, for 30 and under. And by 2040, the whole country is going to be like California or New Mexico or Arizona. Um, and that is a, actually causes a lot of anxiety among the white community. And what is Trump doing? He's appealing to that whiteness and to those fears and to that dark side of people who feel like, I'm not comfortable. My kids are not going to grow up in the same way. They're not going to have the same suburban kind of quality and have a nice house with trees nearby and one thing or another. <laughs> They're going to, it's going to be much more dog-eat-dog. We have to learn how to live with each other. We have to learn how to be with each other and enjoy. Bill Clinton, bless him, you know, said diversity should not be our, our, our weakness. It should be our strength. And if, you, and if you can, 
we can get through this well, and actually we can be a global nation. But if we cling to this idea that's U.S. versus everybody else, and we have to go up so they go down, or they have to go down so we can go up, that's a very dangerous place to, way to live in the world, and it's extremely dangerous here at home in terms of our, our keeping the social fabric uh, uh, vibrant. There are already questions about basically have we gone too far down this dark path and will there be violence? Uh, do you foresee that in the near future? And by the way, what makes you optimistic about the long term? We'll get to that. <laughs> so let's start with because there are questions on that as well. Sure. The, um, I, I, I don't know. And, and I, I don't know anybody who does know. Uh, what the long-term impact of this is going to be, that whether we can get out of it quickly or uh, can someone, you, you know, we've, we've, the, uh, John Meacham is a wonderful historian and good, great storyteller. Some of our best historians are, you know, great storytellers. David McCullough, Doris Kearns Goodwin, John Meacham. You can go through the list. And I, I've, I've recently become a big fan of, of Meacham. Uh, and he's got a book called The Soul of America. Oh. Uh, it's a very good read. But he makes the argument, as Doris does, that we have faced these kind of situations before. Um, and we've generally, with the exception of the Civil War, gotten through them. All right. It's worth, I didn't know this until I picked up the Meacham book, but if you look at the people we sort of call demagogues in the past, they've usually, when they spring into national life into the they have a national profile they usually attract around 30 35% support from the population uh, if you go back to, to father Coughlin and Huey Long for example uh, in the depression father Coughlin was a catholic i think he was a catholic priest he was mm-hmm. uh, and but he was very anti-semitic and he used to have a weekly radio show on the weekends he get 40 million people listening to that radio show and to hear his hatred come pouring out. Huey Long had 35% uh, support before he was shot. Uh, and, and that sort of took him off off the stage. And eventually, you know, Roosevelt outlasted Coughlin. But later on, when we had we had uh, uh, Joe McCarthy, in the McCarthy period, and, and which coincided, overlapped with, uh, with Ike as well as Truman, um, the... Uh, but McCarthy had about 35, 40% approval. He eventually created boredom because everybody had seen his act too many times. People got tired of it. Uh, but then along came George Wallace. And George Wallace started out with around 30, 35% support. And amazingly enough, you know, Wallace, when he first ran for president in a serious way, he got 19% of the vote. Um, and, and the presidential election, and the next election was when he got shot in 72. And he, when, when, when he got shot, killed, and he went lame, he had to pull out of politics. He had been in the Democratic primaries, there been a number of Democratic primaries with George McGovern and George Wallace. And, McG- and, and Wallace was, had a million more votes than McGovern did in, in the primaries. He was a he was a distinct threat as these other people done. So there is this sort of latent. There's been historically this sort of latent embrace by a portion of the electorate that has caused a lot of damage 
and it's taken a while to get over it. And I think we're, I think we're at least in that situation. Um, whether it will be more long-lasting, as I say, I do think when the discourse changes, when you can slime people as readily as you can now on social media, uh, that social media is, is inst- we all thought maybe it would be a way to bring us together. And instead, it's 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 polluted uh, to a, a large degree. I'm afraid in many quarters. So I I, uh-huh. I I I do think you can take solace from history, but it also is a warning that you know you can go over the side. You can you 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 can fail at this too, and you can have a demo- democracy that fails. Before we talk specifically about sure. Republicans and Democrats sure. and the election, I want to pursue this one more step, which uh. several people are interested in, which is. How, what kind of a leader can bring together the, the country at this point in time? You're running a leadership center at Harvard. What, what kind of leaders do you want to develop for this next generation or more quickly than that, I hope? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a somewhat different question. I, you know, I, I'm a big, big believer in, in the next generation. And I'll talk more about that, uh, in a bit. Um, but I, I do believe that there are qualities in this generation that I saw in the World War II generation. And that's part of what yeah, gives me hope. And I think we ought to be taking very seriously the preparation of greater numbers of people um, uh, for leadership roles, not just running for the top, not just running national role. What is going I I tell students at the Kennedy School now, if you really want to make a difference, I used to tell people to go to Washington. I have a hard time advising people to go to Washington now, unless it's for a particularly interesting job. Um, you want to go someplace where there's action and there's responsible leadership and accountable leadership, and I think that's frequently in cities, uh, working for mayors. There are a lot of innovation going on among mayors. There's a lot of innovation going on at the state level. Not of the, not, I don't think it's as um, the state level right now is mixed. Uh, but there are some states that are being com- becoming quite innovative, um, uh, and that's and in social enterprises. You know, you and I both you're involved with Skull Foundation, um, and and Skull Foundation has been doing a brilliant job of uh, trying to promote more in social entrepreneurship. And what do we mean by that? Essentially, you know, we all praise, especially in this part of the country, we all praise the innovators who start. You know, companies and their, they, 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 the startup mentality is very strong here. It's one of the things that distinguishes this part of the country. Um, and the rest of us look to you all for leadership on that. But the, the social entrepreneurs are the people who do startups to change society, to make a difference in society. And look, and it's very, very appealing, uh, to, to some parts of this generation. And I think offers considerable hope. Uh Um, we're going to see a lot of innovations, for example, in healthcare and the delivery of services. And you're going to see this generation do a lot of startups that I think in the social enterprise field that are going to be important. This generation has been very, very important in trying to bring reforms to education. Um, And, you know, I've been on Wendy Kopp's board at uh, Teach for America, and I was on the board at City Year, which is a Another, another group, that, and, and I'm on a number of these boards for social enterprise, and I find among them there is this, there's this effort to, the, the social entrepreneurs cannot solve the overall problem. What they can do is help us find solutions, just as cities can help us find solutions that others can then uh, emulate or copy and put into effect. We ought to be, we ought to have a competition of ideas. 
And they don't have to come all from the left. They, there's plenty of room here for social change uh, for conservatives. Um, and we ought to welcome them into it and say something like impact investing now, which is a, is a big story in a San Jose paper this morning about impact investing. And that is when there are now uh, investment groups that support, that invest in a way not only to make money and to, and to match what they could get if they were in the private sector alone, but also to do, to bring social change, uh, to do things which makes people, you know, which enables people to, uh, uh, to, to get better jobs have, and have a better shot in life. I, I'm very involved with a, a group called Year Up. Uh, and what we do is try to take people who have dropped out of community college. They f- just finished high school. They started going to community college. A ton of people drop out after a year. But then they get lost. And Year Up is a way to bring them in, put, get them to focus in for six months, uh, improving their skills, teaching them the etiquette of the workplace and what it means to have it hold a job. Uh, and these people then... You know, you can go go to one of these programs and you're making $30,000 a year. Some of the people come out making their $80,000 a year. That makes a big difference in your, your, the, the, the capacity to support yourself and a child, uh, and a family. Um, yeah, so I, I'm, I think there are some answers to, you know, the, to this, and I'm convinced the younger generation is going to have a big part of it. And and you and I both have an interest in ethics. Where do their yeah. values come from? Where does their ethics, if well, if not from the World War II generation, which yeah. generated it through that shared yeah. experience? Well, I, I don't want to overplay this with the with the younger generation. It, it, this the millennials plus uh, Generation Z, as it's now called. When you get to Z, you sort of wonder, well, what's going to come next? I mean, uh, <laughs> you join the AA. I don't know what he where you uh, where you get on that. So. Um, the, uh, the, it's interesting, in my judgment, the, what, one of the things that distinguishes the young is that they actually share values mm-hmm. more than in the past. They have a sense of shared values. They have a sense of shared mission. If, if I were, you know, in the midst of Republican, I worked in Republican administration, uh, long ago, but if I were in the midst of one of those now, I'd say, you better be careful because change is coming. There is a wave of people in the younger generation who reject most of the policies of the Republican Party as now seen, and the Republican Party is going to commit suicide uh, unless it wakes up and sees that there are a lot of these younger people who simply do not agree. They, When it comes to sort of sexual identity, for example, they just sort of think this is nuts that there is so much resistance. Just, you know, lighten up. People have different differences. We have to live together with our differences. Um, and they're so, on so many issues, they're much stronger about climate. They understand that they may well be engulfed in, in their own lifetimes. They understand what their, their, their kids may face. Um, and, and, they have, and they share values and they share a lot of... Uh, you don't see the kind of divisions that we saw. What you see are people looking for answers and common answers and common ground. Um, and that is what I, I'm, I'm, that's part of why, uh, you know, my long-term optimism. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. 
the um, let's shift to the current scene. And you Do we have you, to. Yeah. <laughs> you 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 are called on what three times a week by contract to comment on CNN uh, about the state of different developments. Um, here in California, in some ways, we're in a bubble, and it's hard for us to understand the middle American yeah. uh, attraction of, of Donald Trump. You explained part of it. But uh, uh, tell us why there's a real chance that Trump will be reelected. Hmm. <laughs> Let me just say... Uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by what's going on in California. I, I'm a big fan of Jerry Brown's, uh, and uh, I've, I've been with him on several occasions. And uh, I, I like the innovation that went into sort of you know, trying to change the, your election system here, your politics. Um, and there, there are various things that happen in California, but I'm also struck by the fact that you've got Silicon Valley, and yet you've also got the highest poverty rate in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, you know to see what's happened to the schooling here in the and in, in California, you know, we, we, as an East Coaster, we used to look to California because it represented the future. It told us how we were going to be going to be ten years from now. You know, you could always look there because California was at the cutting edge of culture and and change. Uh, but I'm afraid that's not the case right now. And to the extent that it was, I just I hope you can pull it back together because it's so such a vital part of the country. Uh, as well as being beautiful. Um, listen, on, on the Trump thing, if the election were held today, he would lose. Um, but there is a sense now uh, that I share that the Democrats could easily blow this. Um, they they have a habit sometimes of seizing uh, a defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, the... Uh, I have a bias here. I, I think that the new progressives are coming into the party are a breath of fresh, fresh air, but their agendas are the agendas that are aspirational, and that if you know, a candidate who runs on that agenda now is just going to ask him for trouble. Um, the Republicans are waiting to pounce on someone who comes from the far left because they're going to want to know, how much does all this cost? How are we going to pay for it? Are you really for open borders and then giving benefits and medical protection to people who come across the border, which some of these folks are proposing? That issue alone, having open borders with with free you know freebies to people who come, which creates incentives for people to come, for more people to come, that that could lose the election right there. Because um, most Americans just don't see it in those terms, they are horrified by the detention centers. They are horrified by the, the what we're learning about what's happening to children and how they're being separated out. Uh, but most Americans do want some system that's orderly, um, and we're not the only country that. And I don't think that displays a prejudice. And why some people say, well, if you if you don't want open borders, you're prejudiced. I, I'm sorry, I don't see it that way. Look at what happened to other countries. Look at what happened to Chancellor Merkel in Germany, who was, I think, one of the best leaders we've seen in the last 50 years. She's really, she's been just a fine, fine leader in all sorts of ways. But she made a mistake 
when she brought too many, she opened the doors of Germany wide open and let everybody in. And it overwhelmed them, and it totally changed the politics uh, of her country. Um, and that, that's why you have to be sensible about this, these things, as well as humane. And we, we owe it, we have, we have responsibilities to people who come here and seek asylum. We ought to continue honoring those responsibilities. We do have, now I don't want to turn the lights out in the Statue of Liberty. You know, we do represent something different in the world. But uh, nations do also have their cultures, and if you try to change this too quickly, you'll find it's going to come apart. And that's why I think there's some danger if they're a Democratic Party, and I'm sure some of you just totally disagree with me. But I do think there's some danger from the Democratic Party that they misread the country if they think that some of these programs are really what people are ready for. I, I find very few Americans who ready to, are ready to exchange their private health insurance for a system they don't yet understand how well it will work. Uh, and that's why I think that the notion of having a public po- option, yes, we should have Medicare should be available to a Medicare type health care should be available to all. But you don't want to start tearing down the system you have set quickly so that people feel like I'm going to be thrown into, you know, uncertainty and chaos and I, you know, I've come to rely and, and by the way, unions have been fighting for these health care protections from companies for a long, long time. Why would you want to give up really good, strong programs that come from your employer that have been taking so long to get for something that's uncertain, going to be run by the government, probably will have a lot of problems in its early years. Why not let people wait and choose for themselves? So I happen to be sort of someone who very, feels very strongly the moderate Democratic side of things, they can win. But if you get too far out to the left, I'm just telling you, Trump is going to just eat them alive. And he's going to appeal to a lot of prejudices. Uh, we all know that. And you know, the part of this is that there, there are those people who feel that Trump has has, you know, he, he, I, I, you find this a lot in the business community. He's an awful, awful person, a horrible person, horrible human being, but look at the results. You look at the jobs, look at this and look at that. Now, I think the president ought to be joined, it ought to be judged on much more than just the economy. Yeah, my experience has been generally presidents don't determine actually whether the economy goes up by a percentage or goes down by a percentage. That, that there are deeper forces that presidents can't fully control. Um, but, but he does get credit from a lot of people for that. And, you know, when, uh, I think it was AOC who said the other day that if you were, if you were for Trump, you were automatically a racist. That is not fair. There are a lot of good people, uh, in the Midlands of this country who, you know, they're, they're not racist. They're scared or they're angry about whatever, but they're scared. Uh, and we need to hear that. We need, we can't go sort of blithely on dismissing Trump voters as being, you know, second class citizens in some way, rednecks or whatever they are. Are, are there, are there racists in the, Demo- in the Republican Party? Absolutely. Too many. Are there people who are, you know, have, or, you know, they see white nativism? Yes, it's scary. And I have a, uh, 
But but I don't I don't think we should just dismiss. It was like the the Tea Party. I don't know if you, you got used. To, I went out used to go to the Tea Party rallies just to see who these people were and talking to them. And I realized these are folks I went to high school with. You know, they're good. They're good folk. They just they disagree. They don't like the way the country's being run. They they feel like the government or the country's taking away their traditions, like prayer in schools, um, yeah, things like that, and. We, we need to be more open to how can we build bridges as opposed to sort of blessing the hell out of each other, um, which doesn't, it hasn't worked and it's not going to work. Um, but I, look, so I, I have felt for some time that Trump had about a 30, 35% chance of winning. I think that number's going up. And, uh, and I can just tell you that among a lot of my friends, there's despair. I had a call, and I won't tell you who this was, from a major Republican leader, someone respected, pretty respected around the country, a lot of responsibility, beside himself, saying, these Democrats are going to lose the damn election. <laughs> How could they be so stupid? You know, it'll be terrible for the country. So we have many questions about sure. both the Democratic Party and the sure. Republican Party and where they go from here. Sure. So let me let me ask sure. each of those that what for the Democrats, what's going to determine whether the uh, uh, the more radical candidates carry the day for this election or the more moderate? Well, I think that uh, I, I think right now a lot of responsibility is, and is rests on Biden. And can he hold the track? And, you know, there is there is a Joe Biden is clearly, I think, if he if he can hold hold himself together and be better on the debate stage than he was with Kamala Harris, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and and he and his I talked to him, a major um, Biden person said I asked him, is 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 Trump tough enough? I mean, is Biden tough enough to go up against Trump? Because you got to be pretty tough in there with him. You know, he's he's always hitting you below the belt. Um, and uh, he said, yes, he's tough enough. The question is, does he have the stamina for the campaign? Because he gets out there and he gets tired. And then he's going to make a gaffe. And what you worry about is when, 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 the, when the horses are coming down the final lap of the race, is he going to be able to make it to the end or is he going to stumble? Yeah, before he gets to the end. Nobody knows the answer to that question. But everything rests on it about who you get. Now, I, if it's Biden, I, there is, among activists, there's a lot of quiet conversation about Kamala Harris being the number two. And I, you know, I can just tell you that in the East, she commands a lot of respect. Uh, and I saw in one of the, the last poll that came out of California, she's actually moved up above Biden now in preferences. But she's a, uh, because, uh, you know, she, she has a lot of. I, I went to up to New Hampshire to watch six of these people. Each had an hour or five of them had an hour on stage. She had by far and away the best campaign of the command presence, and she's like a badass woman, you know, <laughs> you know, and 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 I like that. Uh, and I, and and I think she can stand up against Trump, but if Biden goes under. I, I, in some ways, she may well be the logical person for people to turn to, but she's going to have to get her ideas straight. You know, I mean, she, she's been all over the lot on Medicare for all what it means. How do you what what what's the you know? She she hasn't really come to grips with that, and she's 
she, she needs to step up her game some. But, uh, but you know, you keep, you keep wondering, has she one term? Does she, does she need a little bit more seasoning before she does? Because she clearly has the capacity at some point in her life to go all the way. Now, I happen to believe that Biden would be well served. And we were talking about this. Mm-hmm. I think both of us agree with this. That I think Biden would be well served if he said, I'm, gonna, I'm here for one term. I want to be a unifying president. I, I'm not looking to run a second term. I'm too old for that. But I do think I can help bring us together, and I'm going to work with the other side, and we're going to try to get some of these problems fixed. And then you guys can go back to your playpens or your sandboxes <laughs> after that's over. Um, but if he brought in Kamala Harris, she could be groomed, in effect, to certainly be one of the contenders. Now, I don't think he would say she is my successor, but I do think he can provide her with the opportunities to really grow uh, as a as a candidate and really grow in her leadership. The questions about the Republican Party ask both yeah. how they're going to manage, how Republican leaders are going to manage during the campaign, presuming Trump continues to uh, make the kind of comments that he's yeah. been yeah. doing yeah. lately. And then secondly, after Trump, what does the Republican Party look like? So uh-huh. you can take on both yeah, sure, of those sure. questions. Let me say one more word about the Democrats, just, and then I'll go to that. Um, I want to put in a word about uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Um, I, I, she's clearly the smartest, most policy-oriented and uh, of all the candidates. And because she's been in the classroom a lot, she knows how to take something that's complex and, and put it in terms that are much more accessible. I mean, she can go complex or she can go simple, but uh, she she can either go. She has a choice whenever she speaks of which way she wants to go. Uh, she, she I, I first met her a few years ago, but twice in in recent months she's called me and said, "Why don't we have coffee together?" And I've I've gone over to her house and we just sat and talked. And I used to think that she was sort of hopelessly liberal, and you know, pretty far over in the left. I found her much more pragmatic person there. Uh, in, in person, uh, and someone I came away with, well, I really ought to rethink this. You know, she's, uh, she's toxic in the business community, and she knows that. Uh, and it's small business and financial, especially financial firms in New York, uh, she has a lot of, a lot of enemies there. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, she, I, I think she's a much more sensible person than she's given credit for. I don't know if she can change her reputation before the voting. But I would keep an eye on her. She's coming up now. Bernie is fading some, and she's she's coming up. And Kamala's, you know, right there. It's, it's, she and Kamala are the two people who I think hold more promise in terms of getting closer to the Biden lead, dropping that lead down, mm-hmm. and more than than uh, uh, Buttigieg, who is a really a nice fellow, and I think the most articulate person in the race. He's really fun to listen to. I mean, he's interesting. You know, he's not it's not boring to listen to Buttigieg. Um, and he has an interesting book out. His memoir is interesting. Uh, but I, at this point, he's young. And, you know, you know the, the people who live in Manhattan are about three times bigger than the people who live in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, and so it's, he just hasn't had those kind of some of the life experiences. But I do know I have some affluent friends are, are throwing their hat in for for Buttigieg. Uh, but I, st- I still think it comes down to what what how does Biden perform, and we'll have a better sense of that. In the, in the next debate, which is, I, I guess, it's next week. Mm-hmm. Um, um, on the Republican side, this has become Trump's party. 
it, it, and it has, you would think it would have been a hostile takeover. It's been less hostile than one would have imagined. Uh, and it's, it's amazing how many Republicans have just sort of sl- slipped in behind him and, and locked out. Most of them because they're scared if they take him on, they're going to lose their districts. And, you know, he has a tendency to want to retaliate if you go against him. Um, yeah, so, but I still think from a moral standpoint, in terms of the leadership of the country, the Republicans would be so much better off if they embrace once again the kind of values that they used to hold high. This is hardly the party of Lincoln anymore. It's almost re- unrecognizable as a party. It's it's flipped around on so many issues, uh, and the the purposeful uh, disdain for science, especially when it comes to climate. You know, it's just I, th- I I I think one day historically, the Republicans are in serious danger now. That people will look back and they say they were just on the wrong side of history, again and again, and uh, this. When I, you know, when I early on got involved with the Republican Party, there were some really fine people who were serving, and you can look up to them and think they represented good values. It's harder to find now. Then there are still there are still some individuals that whom I, I for whom I have great uh, admiration. Um, yeah, I was a, I, Jim Baker was a boss of mine, and he became a mentor and then a friend. Um, and there are people like that that I remember who were really terrific people. George Schultz from your community here is a wonderful human being, wonderful human being. Um, and, and Kissinger was always quite striking. There were just a, you can go back and look at it and say, wow, there were some really terrific people who came along. Um, and some of, some of them in the environmental field. You know, the EPA was started by Richard Nixon. And the people forget that. Yeah, in some ways he was a liberal president domestically. Uh, I mean, he had a lot of uh, other issues, obviously. Um, and, you know, he deserved what ultimately became his fate. Um, but nonetheless, even he, and his private side was his more virtuous side. His public side was the one that was pretty helpful. <laughs> so, so if... President Trump loses this election, or yes. whenever he is out of office, yep. be it uh, 2021 or 2025, uh, the what day the, will come. What becomes? What becomes leave. of the Republican Party? Several people. Well, have I, I think about a lot will depend on who who grabs the falling flag. You know, who becomes the new face of the Republican Party? I mean, there's a good chance that uh, that uh, a Michael Pence, if he became the the nominee of the party. Uh, I think he's going to be the vice presidential candidate with Trump. And if he then serves out, he's going to be in the same place that Richard Nixon was when, after he came out of although Trump and Eisenhower are obviously not in the same sentence. Um, <laughs> but, it, but Nixon served those eight years as vice president and it made him seem very qualified. Uh, but I think Mike Prince is going to pay a price. Uh, for some of the, what's good. He doesn't have the dexterity Trump has to keep changing the subject. You know, <laughs> don't you think that's part of Trump's? Mad- yes, you got to yes. say the guy's a hell of a salesman. I've lost uh, the census issue, so let me tell you about the Gang of Four. Oh, yeah, and I got three more waiting. You know, three more problems. I'll just roll out there with, and and we're we're so numb to it now mm-hmm. uh, that you know people don't object. I mean, some of the things that are being said, freshly said, or th- you know, 
go back to your country? I mean, it's so, it's so, that's the very, that's a textbook definition of racism. You know, the, the equal opportunities group in Washington is this legally constituted body that, that is supposed to look after our, our, the health of our democracy and, and uh, how we treat each other. They've, they're, they're, one of the illustrations they use, one of their main illustrations of racism they use to help people understand what they're talking about is go back to where you came from. And when you tell somebody that, it, it has strong racial overtones. And especially when you tell four women, all of whom are American citizens, three of whom were born in the United States, mm-hmm. that you ought to go back to those hell holes, and he uses worse language than that, uh, to describe them. You know, that is that was unacceptable language. Uh, for a long, long time, uh, and now it's like it, it's we've just it's become the norm, and that's what I mean by the the, the undermining of our of our culture and our and our public discourse. There are several questions about Trump's yeah. personality and where his loyalties really lie. Uh, do you There's have only a sense one thing that he's loyal to? Pardon me. He's, one thing he's loyal to is to himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and he's going to build an empire. Uh, you know, I I have no doubt that he's going to promote Ivanka to, as a potential successor. Seriously, <laughs> you you spent you spent many years advising presidents on communications. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How has White House communications? <laughs> you know, I, that, changed? That, that, let's not glorify it. I, I I started out with Watergate, and I and I wound up with Whitewater. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, this is a president who doesn't hold, who doesn't hold press conferences, who doesn't have a daily press briefing, but uh, governs communicates by tweet. Uh, is that is that what we're in for look, in the future? Look, or? I want to go back to this the, the death of democracy. One of the things that's common with strong men who were rising up in places like Turkey and these other places is they spend their first term silencing their critics to the extent that they can, suppressing the criticism. And they start with the press. They go after the press and try to turn people against the press, try to make sure that they undermine the institution, or they, in some cases, they buy through the state, they buy, you know, uh, uh, broadcasting networks. Um, but they understand one of the first things you do is get rid of your, or try to silence your critics or make sure that they're not believed. And he's come a long way with that. You go after your law enforcement people. You go after the other people who hold society together. And then you, once you've got that under control in the second term, that's when they start doing really radical things in the terms of policy. Mm-hmm. So, and I, that's just a warning. It's not a saying that's going to happen with Trump, but I think it's something we have to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think that this, this constant, uh, barrage. It is a it is a political thing that has very little to do with reality. It has to do everything to do with constructing a society that serves the political ends of the current administration. And you know that's what's going on here. And they they've made some progress, but the the, the number of lies that have accompanied that is such a such a staggering number. Uh, and, you know, the Washington Post keeps track of this and they publish periodically, but, you know, we're over, we're in a situation where six, seven, eight, ten lies a day mm-hmm. is sort of the staple. I remember when the Eisenhower administration, I was young enough to remember that. Um, uh, well, I was young when it happened, but the, uh, but nonetheless, 
he was mortified. But when Francis Gary Powers went down, he was in a spy plane over the Soviet Union. Everybody thought he died, and the plane crashed. Um, and and I went out and said he wasn't a spy plane. We weren't over the Soviet Union. He was you know, he wasn't in any of this stuff. And he went public with that. And then Khrushchev trotted out Francis Gary Powers. They still had him, who had confessed that he was up there spying. He didn't. He was supposed to kill himself if he went down. That was the idea. Um, that was what was expected. But in any event, Eisenhower caught in this gigantic lie. He was hugely mortified by that. He never. He like told two lies in his public life, and we get eight or nine a day. I mean, come be a break about well, how much, how you know what we're dealing with. It, it is. It's. I don't know. We, I let don't me know. let let me. Uh, Ask as a final question. Sure. A couple of people have asked about military values and sure. uh, how important that is to yeah. uh, one's commitment to the country. Uh, sh- should we have some kind of uh, more major inducements for service in the military, or has the military become the province of a more conservative slice of America? Uh, I don't think the military is a slice of the more conservative province. It is the the professional military, people who stay in, tend to be more conservative. They tend to vote more Republican. But I must tell you that it, it, in terms of, let's go back to this, what gives one hope? You know, where is where's the, where's the sign of optimism? Um, and I do believe that within this generation of, the, of millennials and the, and the Z generation, there are a lot of young men and women who have gone off to Iraq and Afghanistan whose lives have been changed by that. They've been in tough situations. Uh, and they remind me so much of the World War II generation that's coming back and then saying, I want to help back here. I'm taking off my military uniform, but I'm putting on my civilian uniform. And I want to be helpful back here. And there, we, we have a growing number of those people. I think they make some of the most promising leaders of the future. Uh, I've been very involved in raising money for Harvard for... I think I mentioned to you that we now have um, 25 scholarships were created for veterans to come to graduate school programs at Harvard, Um, and we're going to work with them on their on their their future leadership, their public leadership, uh, because we think so highly of them. Uh, And so I've had a chance to to have a lot of these folks in my classroom. Uh, They make terrific students. They change the whole conversation. It's much more serious conversation. You've been out there. Uh, you know, on the battle lines, you've had people shooting at you, snipers, you've had IEDs, and you've seen some of your buddies blown up with IED. It toughens you up a lot. And so they, they do make a better conversation. I'm very involved with an organization called With Honor. With Honor. And it's a, not, it's a, started by a, a former student of mine who went to the Harvard Business School and the Harvard Kennedy School, Marine, had spent time in Iraq and you know, Afghanistan. And with honor is a group that we are looking for and encouraging young veterans to run for office, run for the House of Representatives. They have to take a pledge that they will work across the aisle. And they have to take it seriously. Uh, and uh, we, what we've done is work to raise money mm-hmm. to help support their campaigns. And we're working with both sides. We, what we're looking to is to get Republicans and Democrats elected who have military backgrounds who have understand that we're all in this together. They fought under the same flag. 
Uh, and if they take that pledge and they, they can form a caucus and we can get that caucus growing within the House, you can have a middle-of-the-road. All of us are talking about how do you restore the middle in American mm-hmm. politics because we've gone off you know, to the sides uh, on, in both parties. Uh, and so how can, you, how can you begin to reconstruct the middle? And so in this last election in 2018, uh, there were about 20 uh, new members of the, of the Congress who have uh, about half Republican, half Democrat, who came out with the endorsements and the money, some money from with honor. Uh, and we're going to do that again this time around. And we'll have to see. It's tough. But I must tell you, some of these folks are also women, and they make darn good candidates. I, I, watch uh, Kentucky this time around. I don't know who. There's a young woman named Amy McGrath. Yeah, watch Amy McGrath. She is. She, she's going to be one hell of a candidate. Uh, I, I had her in my classroom mm-hmm. to speak, um, uh, and she was. You know, she was. She's the real deal. There are a number of women, and I, that brings me to a second part of why I'm uh, optimistic, and that is, it is. Um, I think that. The big, big, big force for change is going to be women in the arena. Uh, and, uh, it's, uh, there, there is, there is, we, we haven't seen this before. And it's particularly, uh, uh, appealing. We're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Um, and the, the, that was the suffrage that, that extended the rights of voting to women. And here, in this next year, and in that very time frame, we got women who are pouring in who want to really get involved and make a difference. Uh, and I think they're going to do that. Let me give you some sense of the magnitude of that. Emily's List, which is a group in New York that helps uh, young women who want to, or women who want to get run for office, whether it be local, state, or national. Um, and you get contact them when you're just getting started and you need to raise money and do some other things. You get help. Emily is an acronym for early money is like yeast. Yeah. <laughs> early money is like yeast. So if you get help from them, you get them as a list. You have to be pro-choice. Uh, and, and obviously most of them are Democrat. Uh, but Emily's list, in, 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 19, in 2016, in the last presidential election, there were about a 1,000 women. Uh, who called Emily's List from around the country to look for help. This last election, 2018, 39,000 women called. Wow. That's change. That's dramatic change. And the, the Me Too movement and what's going on. But look at the leadership that's starting to emerge. Who the heck is giving, who's the toughest person Donald Trump faces? Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> you know, she, you know, uh, she, she is, if you, if, if the Democrats want another person to turn to to figure out if they can win or lose, it's Nancy. <laughs> if she was 10 years younger, a little younger, she'd be a, you know, she'd be a major figure for the ticket. Um, but you look at what's happening in, in Europe now. The European, the European Union is in, in real trouble, right? They've turned to a woman from Germany to, to, to help run the European Union, the Commission. And who have they, they've, they've taken the woman who's running the IMF, uh, who's now going to be head of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde. She's terrific. I've, I know her, and she's just like a wonderful woman. You can see, and, and look at Merkel. In country after country, women are starting to emerge as real leaders. And God, we need those. 
We just so, we so strongly need the people. So I, I just think if you look at some of the trend lines and how this is the thing in the in John Meacham book. If you respond well to a sense of darkness, if you fight back, if you resist it, if you, you know, if you're willing to put, get in the arena and work for it, people can seize the future back. This is not hopeless. Uh, we've seen it in other generations. But it does take a lot of will. It takes a lot of effort. And what I find in these, in these veterans and what I find in women and increasingly in some others is a real desire to, to find, to declare what we're in right now unacceptable. It's unacceptable as a way to live. It's an unacceptable way to raise our kids and our grandkids. And we've got to find our way out of this. Uh, and we're going to get there. I'm not sure we're going to get there in this election. But I am sure we're going to get out of it. And I'm very, very confident and hopeful about that. David, thank you very much thank for an much. optimistic thank thank note you. at the end. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this evening's program brought to you by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. Again, we would like to thank David Gergen. We'd like to thank our audience here in Santa Clara and those of you joining us on the radio and the web. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Okay, it was fun. That was, that was fun. That was great fun.